You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. So every week you can see behind me a number of books. Uh, What you can't see is there's also a number of little stacks on my desk that typically are what I'm presently working through, maybe for a sermon series. So I want to share with you three different titles that are sitting on my desk right now. Um, and, And you think about what do they all have in common? One is called The Gospel Shaped Life. The second one is called The Gospel Driven Church. And the third is entitled The Gospel Centered Community. Well, probably doesn't take you long to realize they all have gospel in the title, and they all are saying something about the importance of the gospel. And I think they promote a catchy phrase, you know, to think of ourselves as believers, as a church, oh, we're gospel-centered. We're a gospel-shaped community. Uh, The problem is the phrase is great. It certainly is biblical, but I'm not sure that many of us would be able to define what does that mean? What does it mean to say that we're a gospel-shaped people or we have a gospel-shaped life, both individually and as a church? So we're going to develop that more in the next couple weeks. But I want to start with simply this issue of what is the gospel? Uh, And so I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Uh, We just celebrated Easter, the resurrection, last week. Uh, to realize that should be an ongoing reality in our lives. And so Paul here, as he gets to this section in 1 Corinthians, talks about just how foundational the gospel is. Uh, So follow along. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believe. And so we're going to look at this first issue of kind of what what is the gospel, uh, the importance of getting the gospel right by considering the gospel's origin then the gospel's core, and then finally the gospel's transforming power. So the gospel's origin, the gospel's 
core and then the gospel's transforming power. Uh, so let's begin with the gospel's origin. And Paul references this in verse 1 and then in verse 3, as well as in verse 11. And he does it from three different perspectives or vantage points. So let's take the first kind of vantage point of the gospel's origin, and that would be from an apostolic perspective. So as an apostle, how does Paul view the gospel? Why is the gospel so important to him? And so you notice in verse 1, Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. And so when you think of the task of an apostle, one who is sent, it is one who is sent with a message with full authority. So you can't define an apostle without talking about an apostle is declaring, announcing something. So Paul says, as an apostle, this is what I do. This is what I have done. I announce to you the gospel. I, I preach it. I herald it. But then you notice in verse 3 as well, he says, for what I received, I passed on to you. So this phrase that Paul passed this on means he's instructed them in the gospel. And we know that Paul, from the book of Acts, spent about 18 months in the city of Corinth ministering there, teaching them. So unfolding for them the gospel. So as an apostle, he proclaimed it. As an apostle, he instructed them in it. He passed it on to them. And then you get down to verse 11, and Paul wants to remind his audience that all of the apostles preached the same gospel. Because in verse 11, he says, whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. So there, even though we can speak of 12 apostles, there's not 12 gospels. There, there's one gospel. And all of the apostles were in complete agreement from an apostolic perspective as they spoke of this message that they delivered. So it tells us something about the origin of the gospel from the perspective of an apostle. But then Paul also gives us kind of a personal perspective on this gospel. He wasn't just sharing it because it was what his job was or his calling. And so you notice from a personal perspective in verse 1, Paul talks about you receive this gospel. And after receiving it, you have taken it in, you've taken your stand on it. And we'll see he goes on to explain what happens next. But this gospel has been personally received by many in his audience. Notice in verse 3, Paul says, from what I received, I passed on, which gives us another objective dimension of the gospel. The apostles didn't create the gospel. They didn't have some committee meeting where they came up with this and said, let's, let's call this the gospel and let's all talk about this. But Paul reminds us this very message that he received is one that he himself believed in and received from, we know, from Christ himself, based on Acts 9. So a personal glimpse into the origin of the gospel. But then again, look at verse 3, and Paul mentions there that this is a gospel he has received. He's passed it on to them. 
and they have received it as well. So we've looked at the gospel's origin from just from the apostles' perspective, from a personal perspective, but most important is where did they all receive this message from? And he tells us the gospel was given according to the scriptures. And so now you have a biblical perspective. And that is critical for us as we hear so many messages around us today, uh, whether it be certain individuals, theologians, uh, we need to know the source because the source of the gospel, its origin is crucial. And so you see in verses three and four, Paul says, for what I received, I passed on to you of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Then in verse four, he'll go on and say he was buried. He was raised on the third day. Once again, according to the scriptures. And it's a little bit unusual for Paul in this case. When he uses the word scriptures, he uses it plural. Uh, often in Paul's letters, when he's referencing the testimony of the scriptures, he'll use it singular to sort of emphasize there's one unified message in the Bible. But in this case, I think he wants us to broaden our understanding that when he says the scriptures spoke of this, that he's appealing to both major and minor prophets to give us a solid foundation that you could look in Isaiah, like we did in our opening meditation, Isaiah 52. Uh, in Isaiah 52, verse 7, when he mentions how blessed are the feet of those who proclaim this message, that that's exactly what he refers to in Romans 10 as those who bring this news of what Christ has done. Uh, and so we see that this is a founded in the scriptures, which means the origin of the gospel is found in God. It's not found in man. It's not a man-made story. Uh, it's not an invention of us, a design by us. It is from God, which would explain why Paul often refers to the mystery of the gospel the mystery of God. It's something that we would never have found in and of ourselves. We would never have created or thought of it or determined that by looking at creation. This had to be revealed to us as coming from God, once unknown by us, but now made known to us by God. And this biblical perspective of the gospel's origin is attested to in verses 5 through 7 by numerous witnesses. So it's very important when we know we live in a day and an age where the resurrection of Christ, his bodily resurrection, his physical resurrection, is going to be questioned. Liberal scholars have done that for centuries. More and more people are skeptical of the accuracy of the New Testament. Uh, questioning whether or not, you know, this was something that they wanted so badly to happen, that they fabricated it, that, it, that it got spun into a big lie, that in a sense, what we have in a day of fake news is we have a fake gospel. Uh, but notice the clear eyewitness testimony that Paul references repeatedly in verses five through seven. Uh, you've, you've got the apostles mentioned. Uh, you've got Peter mentioned. 
individuals mentioned who who did not expect to see Christ rise from the dead. I mean, we, we know that sadly from even the apostles' reaction to the death of Christ, they, they scattered. Uh, some of them kind of went back to their fishing for a little bit there. Uh, they did not expect this. Uh, the shock of seeing the empty tomb uh, reverberated through the women as well as the apostles and disciples. Uh, he includes testimony of groups of over 500. Uh, this is the only reference we have to that. There are no other references in the gospel, but appearing to both individuals behind closed doors, to large groups in some kind of public setting, as well as he mentions to James here in verse 7, uh, which is most likely James, the half-brother of Jesus, who would become a believer after the resurrection, uh, and possibly because of an appearance of Christ to him that directly caused him then to not just become a believer in Christ, but eventually a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And then Paul includes himself. Lastly, God made himself known to him through Jesus Christ, as we referenced earlier in, uh, recorded in Acts 9. So that tells us something about the gospel's origin. So if any other gospel is promoted or taught that doesn't match this origin, Paul says clearly then it is a false gospel. And you may recall how Galatians 1 opens where Paul says to some in the churches in Galatia, I'm, I'm shocked that you so quickly have departed from the gospel I taught you. In other words, you, you've gone after another gospel, which Paul says is another, but really it's not a gospel at all. So the origin of the gospel is divine. It is singular. It is unified. There's just one gospel, not many gospels. But that doesn't really answer for us what exactly is the gospel. And we're very much aware that the church at Corinth had many issues. I mean, if you start to rattle them off, there are issues of uh, immorality in the church. There are issues of division in the church. Uh, there were even issues related to some in the church where were possibly affirming the reality of Christ's resurrection, but questioning whether or not believers would be resurrected. And so to answer all these issues, it should be striking to us that Paul goes back to the gospel. And so let's take a look now at the gospel's core. What does it mean to speak of the gospel? And if we were sitting in a, all together in our living room or something, I might take a moment to say to you, how would you answer the question, what is the gospel? And I want you to think about that for, for just a few seconds. How would you answer that? So being gospel-centered, gospel-shaped, a gospel-centered community are, are great catchy phrases, and they're biblical phrases. But the problem is, I don't think many of us can articulate what does that actually mean. It sounds good. And so maybe your first response would be, well, I know the word gospel means good news. And if you said that, you're exactly right. Maybe pat yourself on the back. Uh, that's good. You knew it means good news. But, but why is it good news? And, and what does that good news 
include in that unified definition of the gospel? Well, let me draw your attention to verses 3 and 4, because Paul gives us a concise definition of the core of the gospel by referencing four verbs. And so when we think of what is the gospel, verses 3 and 4 tell us specifically. Notice in verse 3, the first verb he uses, Christ died for our sins. So this announcement of good news is that Christ died for our sins. Uh, and by that, we're, we're certainly understanding there was a substitution involved uh, that we should have died for our sins. We were the guilty ones. So there's a substitutionary part of Christ's death. Also that there's a representative part, that, that he represented us, which means he must have been able to be fully man, a full human nature yet without sin, because otherwise he would not be a full representation of us. And yet he had to be fully God to be able to have that death meet and provide perfect redemption and forgiveness of sin. So when we speak of this good news, it is first that Christ died for our sins. Then the second verb he mentions that Christ was buried. This would tell us first the death that he died was real. It was not just a sort of a, a quasi kind of experience, uh, but it was a real death, a physical death. Uh, he was crucified on our behalf. Uh, the fact that he was buried shows us and reminds us the punishment of all sin is death. Uh, we think of later, the writer of Hebrews would say that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And as harsh as it might be, that to talk about the gospel must include the painful reality of the physical, spiritual, and emotional humiliation and agony that Jesus Christ endured on our behalf. To, to downplay that or to turn it into just some kind of symbolic representation of his love is to promote a different gospel. Uh, and we know right now in theological circles in many churches, um, we, we don't want to talk about the wrath of God. We, we don't want to emphasize the, the fact that Christ was, was executed on the cross, that that was the only way to meet the wrath and justice of a holy God. But from Paul's perspective, he's reminding the believers in Corinth, this is the gospel. So Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried as a punishment for our sins. But then notice the third verb, Christ was raised on the third day. Uh, now, Paul does something very subtle there. He changes the tense. So the first two verbs are in like an, an aorist tense, which means they're just referring to something that has happened. But when he says Christ was raised on the third day, that the tense there is the perfect tense. In other words, what happened then continues to have results now. 
So when you speak of Christ being raised, you could say that Christ was raised and is raised even now. So you move from the humiliation to the exaltation of Christ. So Christ died, he was buried, he was raised. And then a final element in the presentation of the gospel is Christ appeared. And you'll see, you see this reference repeatedly in verses 6 and 7, um, when Paul refers to this eyewitness testimony that the Christ appeared. He made himself known. And with that, we want to just kind of realize the threat in that is not just to the post-resurrection appearances, but do we look forward to Christ appearing again, of Christ returning as a glorious king and a triumphant king and appearing and his presence being made known throughout all heaven and earth and a physical visible kingdom that will accompany his second coming. And so when you think of the gospel, it should include all of those different elements. I think we're sometimes today where we tend to focus on the gospel is we focus on the response to it. The response is different from the gospel. Now, this gospel should and does elicit a response. You either have to say you believe it and put your confidence and trust in what Christ has done, or you reject it, but that is not the gospel. That's the response to the gospel. So in other words, Paul sees a church that is struggling in many ways, and where he wants to take them back is to the gospel, to the origin of the gospel, and to the core of the gospel. And so maybe now we'd be better equipped if I were to ask you, what is the gospel? What is the good news? It's simply this. The gospel is what God has accomplished for you and me through Jesus Christ. So the gospel is what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ for you and me. That's the gospel. That's the good news that Paul as an apostle taught, that many in Corinth had embraced and received. It is the gospel that we are to proclaim and share. So much so that you notice in verse 3, Paul says, I received what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That there are many important doctrinal teachings, but clearly of first importance is getting the gospel right. And as I just said, Paul does not launch into some kind of self-help program for the believers in Corinth. He doesn't immediately launch into, here's an organizational chart that would solve all your problems. But where he takes them back to is the gospel. You have to get the gospel right to have a gospel-shaped life, to have a gospel-centered community, to even have a gospel-driven church. But there's a final element in Paul's discussion here. And that is the gospel's transforming power. Because if you get the first two right, that should naturally lead to a conclusion and amazement at the gospel's 
transforming power. And we need to remind ourselves of this, just like Paul says in the opening verse of chapter 15, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Paul has probably been absent from the Corinthian church for about three years when he writes this follow-up letter. But he says, I, I want to take you back. I want to remind you. And it should strike us as interesting that he's talking primarily to believers. And he's saying to them, I want to remind you of the gospel's origin. I want to remind you of the gospel's core. And then finally, I want to remind you of the gospel's transforming power. And maybe this is where we are often amiss when we think of this good news. It is for unbelievers to hear and for us to proclaim, but it's not just for them to hear. It's for us to remind ourselves. And so I want to take a look at this transforming power of the gospel before we conclude. And you notice in verses 1 and 2, Paul has already said, this is the message you received. But notice what he goes on to say in the second half of verse 1. It is on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. To say that they have taken their stand on this, it means that they have uh, not just received this, but acted upon it in faith, uh, that they have made it their own, and that it not only has saved them, but notice the compounding part, if you hold firmly to this, if you continue to occupy yourself and be absorbed in what the gospel actually is, you will experience its transforming power. And I hesitate to think that for many people who will find themselves in Zoom worship this morning, just like you and me, that they often think of the gospel as some kind of enlightened self-improvement program. Uh, here's something that will make your life happier. Here's something that will help you get through the circumstances of the week. Now, I'm not questioning the gospel has a transforming power to equip us for that task. But that's missing the point of the gospel. The gospel is to glorify God. And Paul is in awe of the transforming power of the gospel. And you see this when you get to verse 7 through 9. Paul's gone through this list of who Christ has appeared to. And then he comes to himself and says, last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. Now you may have found yourself wondering, what does Paul mean by as one abnormally born? It may sort of shock us to, to think the word actually means uh, and references a, a miscarriage or, or one who was aborted. In, in other words, Paul is saying the shocking reality is the gospel reached me. And, and I was persecuting the church when this happened. Uh, I was on my way to Damascus to, to infiltrate these private fellowships and to arrest people and, and to have them killed. And that's when God reached me in Christ. It's just unprecedented. It was 
unexpected. It was unpredictable. And Paul stands in awe that of the power of the gospel to change one like him. And he's never lost sight of that. Here he is years after his conversion experience, and he's still reminded of the power of the gospel. But there's something else in Paul's understanding of this, where he's not falsely beating himself down. He's thankful that he's been called as an apostle. But listen to what he says in verses 10 and 11. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Well, Paul's saying here the transforming power of the gospel doesn't just result in salvation, but now you're called and equipped to serve God and honor and glorify him. For Paul, that unique role was as an apostle. But notice how he says that here. The grace that God gave was not without effect. And I think as we answer the question, about is, is your life, is my life, a gospel-centered life? It is, a, is it a gospel-shaped life? Would be this question, how well does the transforming power of the gospel display itself in your life throughout the week? Paul clearly says here that the impact of this is he worked diligently. Now, he's not putting down the other apostles and saying, well, look at me, I'm better than them. But he's saying, from a personal perspective, here's how the gospel has impacted my life. I'm, I'm marked by diligence, service, and devotion, and commitment to my Lord and my Savior. And he's hoping and praying that this will be imitated by others in the church of Corinth who profess that they believe in this same gospel. If you go to the end of this discussion, if you were to read the rest of chapter 15, what Paul will do is in verses 12 through 34, he'll present the arguments positive and negative. In other words, he'll say, well, what if Christ didn't raise from the dead? and says, all of these things then are meaningless. And then he talks about, yeah, but what if it's true? Now, he knows it's true, but he's just arguing this. And then I'll talk about what if it's true? Then everything Jesus said, assurance of salvation, assurance that when you die, you go to be with the Lord, all of those things are verifiable. But you get to the end of that argument in 1 Corinthians 15, and look with me at verse 34 to show you the practical impact of what the transforming power of the gospel should have on you and me. Verse 34, he says, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. In other words, if you have the origin of the gospel correct, the core of the gospel correct, and you understand the transforming power of the gospel, correct? It will first impact your thoughts. 
when he says, come back to your senses, you could almost say he's saying, wake up and, and have a sound theological mind. <clears throat> Show that you do understand what the gospel is. And then if you understand what the gospel is, it should be a motivating factor <clears throat> in helping you deal with sin, distancing yourself from sin, experiencing greater triumphs over sin. And all of this is based on not the gospel as a self-improvement program, <clears throat> but as the reality of the grace of God that is at work in your heart, which is at the core of the gospel. And so in the next weeks, as we develop this more, at least kind of be thinking today, <clears throat> are you getting the gospel right? Are you getting the gospel right? And then thinking on that, is our church getting the gospel right? Because you can't say you're a gospel-centered church if individually we're not getting the gospel right. And so that's where it needs to start. John Calvin spoke of the Christian life, that it should be lived in the shadow of the cross and in the brilliant light of the resurrection. In other words, we live our Christian faith based on getting the gospel right. And Paul does that, not just in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, but in this case, he does that for the believers in Corinth, and he just does that to encourage and equip you and me in following Christ this week. As we go to the Lord in prayer, uh, again, keep in prayer Jordan at this point. Uh, he is scheduled for surgery either Monday or Tuesday, uh, so maybe when that's definitively known, I'll send out a quick reminder, um, but keep, keep him in prayer. Pray as well, I think, for Valley and Jordan spiritually. Uh, that during this time they will, uh, again, gain confidence and peace only by looking uh, to the one who is the father uh, of the gospel. Uh, let, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that not only are the scriptures God-breathed, <clears throat> but they are marked by clarity and simplicity, that you have given us a clear understanding of the gospel. And so I would ask for each one of us that your Holy Spirit would have each of us take time today to go over this passage again, uh, to pray that we would be getting the gospel right, and to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, at New Hope to be getting the gospel correct as well. Lord, forgive us for often approaching your word merely as a tool to be used to get us through our day, rather than to take us into the presence of Christ, to focus us on the glory of God displayed in the face and being and work of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we continue to pray that you would physically watch over each one in the family of God here, uh, that you would help us to be cautious but not fearful, Help us to be patient and to use this change in our daily routines as an opportunity to spend more time with you, not less. 
that rather than becoming sometimes irritated or agitated, uh, that we can't be in our regular places of work and about our normal activities, that we would see this interruption uh, as a godsend. First to your children to spend more quality time with you. Uh, Lord, we pray that in our community as well as in our nation and in the world, uh, that this would be a reminder to many of the fact that only you are sovereign. Uh, that individuals do not have full autonomy over their entire lives, uh, that we cannot determine the future. And so we pray that this would have a very humbling effect upon many people, uh, that it might break them of their pride, uh, might cause them to be open to the very message that we have studied this morning uh, of their need for Jesus Christ, uh, of the fact that they, they're lost and that that condition, unless changed by your grace, uh, Lord, will result in eternal punishment and the wrath of God upon them, which is justly deserved. May that create a greater motivation in your children to tell others about what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Lord, we also pray for our leaders, our health officials, as they look at how to implement a reopening of different uh, areas in our country and among different states. Pray for wisdom in that. Uh, again, we are so thankful that we know the timing of that is in your hands. Uh, and so we thank you again for technology, but it reminds us that it is never to replace the design that you have given for your church, uh, the physical gathering of your people uh, to spend time together around your word and in fellowship, as Acts tells us, and the breaking of bread together. And so we do look forward to when we can do that, Lord, in a way that takes even what we're doing now to a fuller and more complete level. Lord, I do ask for each one who's listening now uh, that you would Burden us throughout the week. Uh, burden us that we would desire greater holiness, that we would pursue your word in a way that we haven't, that we'd realize this is not a matter of us trying harder, but it's of us yielding to that work of grace that Paul spoke so well of in this text. And so may you continue to change us and transform us to the glory of Christ that we would point others more effectively to you. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior. And now to the immortal, invisible God, be all honor and glory in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.